and welcome to Dot to Dot, the podcast that connects the dots on how to be you with me, Fiona Merton, psychologist and author. Once again, I know I always say I'm excited by my guests, but I really am. I'm speaking to Lydia Denworth, who is a science journalist um, with lots of strings to your bow, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> I like hearing it that way. I've never heard that before. Well, you've written for a lot of different um, publications, haven't you? The yes, Scientific American, is, I think, has been quite prominent there. Um, right. Newsweek, um, The w- People. So back in the day, I was a I was a bureau chief for people actually in London, um, but that was another lifetime. I wasn't doing science journalism for people because they don't do that. So yeah. um, this but is I, this is more my my thing. But I mostly now write for Scientific American. I'm a contributing editor there. I write for The Atlantic, The New York Times a little bit, um, and yes, lots of other publications here in the U.S. So some amazing publications as well. And your background is no other that none other than Princeton. <laughs> so <laughs> true. A, fa- a fabulous yes. institution as well. That is true. That is true. Although I sort of um, my claim to fame in the science journalism world is that I did no science. I did the bare minimum of science through high school and college. I was a history major. I was not. It wasn't my thing. And I have reconsidered that I've gotten you know really interested it's it's a reminder that we can keep uh, changing and learning as we grow up as we become adults and we're still figuring out what we're doing when we grow up right 30 years later (laughs) absolutely I gave a talk yes uh, last week actually to 350 professors and the talk was about brain plasticity and the fact that yes we can continue to learn and grow and develop and actually the thing that stops us is thinking we can't this is true. But but I think it's also really interesting when people often get a barrier to sciences. I loved sciences. And actually, the thing that was quite unfortunate in some ways for me was it deterred me from doing more creative things because mm. I loved creativity and I loved making clothes, art, all that sort of stuff. But if you're good at science, you tend to be encouraged to do science. Yes, and I'm so, sure that's true. And, you know, it worked out well for me and I do still enjoy it. But sometimes I find it more difficult to let my hair down, as it were, around the more creative side, I think. Oh, um, that's interesting. Yeah. So that uh, I, I obviously come at it the other way. So I haven't seen it that way, but that makes sense. I think it's and I think the thing is with your writing, you have a very good knack at telling stories. So you draw people into to what it's about, which helps people understand. I mean, we know now the neuroscience behind that as well, don't we? So Yuri Hassan's work and various other people's work to show that if it's a story, it makes sense. It's the way to reach people. It's the way to, I mean, I feel that my job is to is to take what's important about science and, and try to get people interested in it and to, you know, bring them along. And I often feel that I am writing for myself when in my pre-science life, um, you know, I would not have understood a lot of things or take, you know, there's a a whole lot of, well, certainly not the jargon and the language that scientists use, um, which you have to learn how to decipher, but, uh, but also just sort of understanding what's important and why and what we know and what we don't know and how science works, all of these things. It's a story. All of science is a story. It is. And I think it's really important to have people representing it accurately, yet 
taking away the jargon and the complexity and putting it in a language that people can connect with. And there is, I believe, there's a, a gap still between where we have science and where we have uh, non-science in terms of, I, if I talk about psychology, which is my topic, so there's a lot of pseudo-psychology out there. So there are a lot of people who sell an awful lot of books and who make an awful lot of money by being motivational speakers and hyping things up, which aren't actually properly represented from science. They're not evidence-based. But then if you took, look at a lot of people who are psychologists and who are deeply evidence-based, you know, they, they, people don't necessarily engage with what they're saying as much because they're clinging so tightly to the, the language of science and the accuracy and not allowing themselves to open it up with the stories and the other ways of communicating. Yeah, it's true. It's a, it's a, it's a tightrope to walk, uh, you know, and you need to be able, I, what I hoped, um, I mean, in my book friendship that we're going to talk about, I, I felt in some ways that I was able to say things about it that the scientists themselves wouldn't let themselves say, you know, I mean, I was surmising and kind of summing things up and, um, you know, hoping to draw some conclusions and, and, uh, you know, you have to be careful doing that. And obviously sometimes people, um, over interpret a very little bit of information, but, uh, but that's really what it's all about. That's why people are doing this work is to, um, is so that we understand more about how the world works, how we interact with each other and, you know, and, and why. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I will always say to a leader is however good you are, everything, or anything, you can always improve your communication. It's a very powerful tool, but it's also one that never, ever, ever is really completely refined. You can always iterate <laughs> and build on and evolve your capability of communication. And we see the power of <laughs> power of communication from people that maybe aren't giving the right message will still engage a lot of people because of the way they're communicating. Very true. One final point on this is it's I spoke to a, a neuroscientist a few episodes back on this and she has done some amazing work. If you haven't come across her, I, I would look her up. It's Christine Wu Nodal and she's at UC Davis and looks at autism in children. And she studied, you know, longitudinal studies are really hard with things like neuroscience, particularly on children, particularly with autism, when you're trying mm -hmm. to get them into fMRI machines. But she studied children throughout the li their lifetime, basically, from the early 2000s. And she, she is so, her work is so groundbreaking, but I feel like it's not being celebrated enough. It's not being sort of talked about enough and so that again it's this piece around someone who I wanted then to go in and coach her in the way I would a leader in a corporate and say come on you know you've got all this amazing stuff but that you know that wasn't my place place to do but if actually while I'm talking to you as a journalist if you have any opportunity to, to look her up and see what she's done brilliant brilliant woman she's really um tried to level the playing field between having male and female cohorts as well which is really All difficult right. with children with autism mm -hmm. so she's done some great work now i'm going off at different tangents so i'm going to come back and say what we're really here to talk about today is your book friendship which is what it says as we would say in england it does what it says on the tin 
<laughs> but what you've done is you've you've unpacked it. You've unpacked the evolutionary biology, um, the psychology, the neuroscience, um, and you've put stories around it. You also meticulously interviewed a lot of people, didn't you? Yes, I do. That is my stock in trade. <laughs> brilliant. Can you tell us a bit about the the premise or, or what, what got you interested in writing about it in the first place? Um, I, you know, I write a lot about the brain and psychology, mental health, and I had finished a previous book and was kind of, you know, in my job as a science journalist, I was I was writing stories, but I was also always kind of casting around for what what to do next. And I went to a social neuroscience conference. So it was one of the first of such things. That's a relatively new field. Um, and so it's all about the neuroscience of connection, of, of social interaction. But what struck me was that so many people there were talking about friendship. And, you know, I always think it's a good idea to listen in, to talk to scientists about what they think is interesting and important, but also to listen in when they're talking to each other. And even though this was all about being social, it hadn't occurred to me that friendship would be the thing they're talking about. Often the sciences, maybe it's about, you know, people in, in it's, it, and it was, there was plenty about autism, for instance, and other, um, other disorders that have social disconnect or social connection at their core. Um, and there's a lot about, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you know, mothers and babies and things like that, things you might expect, but, but friendship was unexpected to me. And the fact that neuroscientists and evolutionary biologists and other kinds of people were thinking about friendship was really interesting to me. And I thought, if well, if that's interesting to me, maybe that's interesting to other people. And and what I've learned is that, you know, we have taken, I think we we have taken friendship for granted for a long time. It, we have also thought for many thousands of years that it is really cultural, that it is a kind of a pleasant byproduct of human evolution and and interaction and uh, and language. And it's true that there are plenty of cultural elements to friendship. But there is also this deep evolutionary story, a biological story, and it's only in the last kind of maybe 20 years that we've really come to understand that, partly by looking in other species and seeing friendship or something like it, and that made the scientists kind of realize, wait, there's something, there's something bigger here. There's a bigger story. This is a, a, a universal story. And uh, I thought that was fascinating. I thought I wanted to know about that. And I thought it would be interesting to see if I could go deeper and tell people things about friendship that they that they didn't know. Um, and, and, you know, like everyone, if you're going to write a book, you, you want to be interested. <laughs> you need to put in a couple of years of effort, right? And I care a lot about friendship. I care about my friends. And I was at a point in my life where my kids were growing up and out. I was losing my parents. I was thinking, okay. My friends have always been important, but going forward, you know, it's going to be really critical in my life to have these good friendships in place and to see if my friendship house was in order, as I sometimes say, right? And so, so it was personally intri uh, intriguing as well. Yeah, I, I like that. My friendship house was um, <laughs> in order. But the, a point you make 
um, I can't remember where it was I, I either read or heard you saying this was the busyness of life often gets in the way of friendship and I actually say exactly the same in my first book so I was like yes 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 <laughs> um, but w- when we become parents in particular life tends to be taken up with concern for getting things done as much as anything else getting things done for our children they become the priority then it's their activities then it's the teenage years where we're worrying about them the whole time and so there isn't much space left always for friendship yet as you've explained in the book friendship is as important if not well in many cases it's been proven to be more important than a lot of other health related benefits it is over the long haul, it is as important as diet and exercise. And we don't think of it that way. We, we, you know, we schedule in our time at the gym or our run, our runs around the park or whatever. And our, and we are very thoughtful about what we eat and, or maybe, hopefully we are, most of us are. Um, And we do not schedule in time with our friends in the same way we don't think of it in the same way we often feel a little guilty it feels like a it feels like too much dessert maybe um mm-hmm. you know <laughs> and so it it's drops to the bottom of our priorities it doesn't mean we don't enjoy our time with our friends we we do and we we have since i mean socrates and aristotle wrote about fr- the friendship and how pleasurable it is um but we maybe because it often feels so pleasurable it doesn't it doesn't feel important enough to um to sometimes crowd out the other things in life and of course i'm not saying i i have three kids you know and a career a husband that i had have had a plenty busy time these last couple of decades and uh and so i really know what it is to feel kind of overwhelmed by all the things you have to get done and that there just isn't room for time with your friends and there will be ups and downs, you know, um, in terms of the actual amount of time you can spend with people. But what I think is really important to understand is that there's probably always something you could be doing and that that you could be prioritizing it, reframing how you think about it in in your in your life. You know, it yes, you should spend time with the people you are biologically related to. And yes, you should spend time with your romantic partners if you have them. And by the way, we can get to this, but you know, those people can be friends, but aren't automatically friends. And it's kind of, this science has given us some new definitions of friendship, but also blurred the lines a little bit from the way we have traditionally thought of this. But, but, um, but let me not get distracted here from the point I was making, which is just that, you know, I hope that what my book does is give you permission to hang out with your friends and, and understand that, you know, you are doing something good for yourself and for them when you do that. It certainly does. It comes across loud and clear. And something that I'm often intrigued by is people's values. So values mm. is something else that is so core to who we are. It's it's core to have living with meaning and purpose, which we also know um, leads to living longer, healthier life. But we often forget to connect with our own values. And friendship can often be one of those um, items that's not probably the right way to say it because it is worth so much on on that sort of target of values as it were but it makes me think of something else I was just thinking this while you were talking um I often hear women talking about friends that they spend time with who are quite toxic 
who make them feel really lousy. And I'm wondering, I'm just wondering out loud this, so just bear with me if you will. Um, Because it's not something that's as conscious, on, it's not consciously on our radar all the time, the friendship, it falls down to the bottom of our list of priorities. I wonder if therefore we often don't stop and look at which are the friendships that give us the most. Absolutely true. We, uh, so I think the pandemic has done a couple of interesting things. I mean, it did, it did help us to be more aware of the importance of friendship in our lives and of, of good quality relationships. Right. And, uh, and that's what my definition of friendship is, is about uh, relationships that, that involve time, trust, taking turns, they, um, it's, you know, a long, steady, stable relationship. It's positive. It makes both individuals feel good and it's reciprocal and cooperative. There's, um, there's a back and forth to it. And a lot of the other things we think about with friendship come with that, but many of our relationships don't actually quite meet that definition. And so in some ways, the pandemic maybe is this perfect time we're coming, we're coming out of it. We're we can hit reset on our social lives and really look at the relationships that sustain our souls, you know, and, and some of the other ones we don't have to hang on to in, I'm not saying we have to get rid of them altogether in our lives, but um, I think we are well served to rec- to know for sure that the core group of people are, are tight, our inner circle, which can be, should be all should all those relationships should fit my definition of a quality relationship, a quality bond, whether they're family or friends. And most of us only have about four people in that inner circle and it's split between family and friends in the traditional definition of friends being people you don't have sex with and aren't related to. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But so those people, those should be really positive. And often it's the people we've known a really long time. We have shared history with, but the word I get is draining. Like, you know, Mm. we, we go so far back, but every time we get together, it's so draining and, you know, or it's, uh, she never asks me about me, (laughs) things like that. You know, she just talks all the time. That's the reciprocal piece. That's the, there. it, it can't be too lopsided. Mm. Um, might be lopsided in the moment if someone's got a crisis and someone else is helping, that's fine. And, you know, I'm not talking about a, a tit for tat accounting um, because actually with your closest friends, the accounting kind of, we, we lose sight of it. That all goes away, and which is lovely. That's what's lovely. You stop keeping count of, of who's done what for whom. But over time, there should be this, this evenness to it. And you need all those legs of the stool. You need the, the time put into the relationship so that it's a steady, reliable presence in your life. You need the positive piece that it makes you feel good and them feel good. And you need this back and forth, this, this cooperative reciprocal nature of it. And if I think it's, uh, it's important to look at our relationships with a clear eye and, um, and, you know, recognize which ones are good for us and which ones maybe not so much. And I get into in the book, but, you know, so truly toxic relationships, it's not that surprising that they're bad for us. Although it is surprising the level to which some of these relationships are bad for us. I mean, you think of friendship as it sits out here. It's a, it's a relationship that is, you know, exists outside your body. It's kind of counterintuitive that it would be as 
that it, that it would have the power to get in under the skin and affect your cells and your neurons and things. But it does. I mean, friendship for the good and loneliness and social isolation for the bad affect our cardiovascular functioning, our immune system, our cognitive health, our mental health, our stress responses, our sleep, the rate at which our cells age and how long we live. Um, and so that's pretty powerful stuff, right? And so we should be taking it really seriously. So toxic relationships are truly bad for you. Positive relationships are really good for you. The ambivalent ones in the middle where we feel a mix, and that's a lot of our relationships, mm. turn out to not be so great for you. You might have thought that the positive outweighs the negative, but not necessarily. So that's a reminder that the quality of relationships is really a critical factor. It's really fascinating. And I'm thinking of another book, and I can't remember the name of the author, but you might have come across her in your work. Her book's called Positivity, and she's a professor of psychology in Chapel Hill. Um, oh, yes, I'm forgetting her name, but she's she's really a leader in positive psychology, I think. Yeah, really. Know, that you're talking about. It, it, she has a ratio of three to one, uh, which mm -hmm. she's calculated. So three positive to one negative, and anything above that's obviously good. You need some negative to... In, in terms of emotions to be able to experience life fully and to have the, the the light and the dark but I wonder how that would correspond if similar research was done on friendship whether it was this three to one ratio you know you have to have three positive aspects whatever elements or variables we might pull out of that to the one negative the ambivalence sort of sits yeah well for sure within within all of the relationships that we are ambivalent about, there's going to be a range of where the positive and negative balance out. And for sure, one that is mostly positive and just as a little bit of negative is going to be um, not, um, is going to be better <laughs> than one that is the, that is the reverse. And I am not trying to say that, there, look, relationships are messy even friendship. Mm -hmm. We often don't have the hard conversations with our friends that that would help maybe to improve the relationship. Um, we have those conversations with our significant others, the people we live with because we're together all the time and we're sort of forced to, and we know that those relationships would be are stronger if we sometimes hash out, you know, the negative. Um, and I believe that we should try a little harder with our friends to, to do that um, in ways that are respectful and, and, try to be kind because of course being kind, I think one of the interesting things actually is that we are nicer to our friends usually than we are to our, like our spouse, for instance, or, you know, one of the jokes I make is that I never criticize the way my friends load the dishwasher, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I live with it. I, uh, you know, um, but my husband, uh, not so much, you know, he, he, he comes in for a little bit of criticism there. Um, and, you know, we can often get sounding kind of snippy with the people that we live with. And of course that's going to happen, but, but I think taking a step back and, and, and saying, okay, when the negative is there, like, how do I handle it? And, and with what kind of tone and um frame of mind for myself and you know but so with friendships i mean you have to work at them mm -hmm. just like you have to work at other relationships um but then it's really worth it when mm -hmm. they pay off now to be clear we don't have time to work that hard at 
all of our relationships, which is why we tend to have this core group of really close people. And then we have these kind of concentric circles moving out of slightly larger groups of people that we like a lot. And, you know, we are interested in, but we we can't, I'm not suggesting that you should or could put the same kind of time and effort into everyone. That's why there is sort of a little bit of a, uh, um, like a partisanship to friendship. I mean, this is why you prefer one person to another and you just kind of gravitate. There's, there's a kind of chemistry to friendship that's interesting. Right. And, uh, and so that's fine. Although you don't, she shouldn't be nasty about it. You shouldn't be exclusive about the other people, but um, anyway, I'm getting sidetracked here. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. And I'm thinking about the work I do in an organizational context, whether that's with medics or leaders uh, and thinking about how much work they have to put into relationships. And that's within a working context. And obviously there, I mean, particularly when you're talking about um, high risk environments like an operating theater, it's, you know, the surgeon needs to be having a good relationship with his team because otherwise the patient outcomes aren't as positive. Um, But those skills, when they're learned within the context of a work environment are transferable then to outside of work within the friendship uh, sort of environment but I'm not sure they're often reapplied so you know you might be taught how to have that conversation in a way that's as you said kind mm-hmm. um, it's it's factual it states what's not working and what is working what the impact is on you it's calm takes away the, the sort of inflammatory element to it but I would be interested to see how much that is then replicated outside mm. of work I think it's a little bit the other way that the people who are good at it at work are probably good at it in their personal lives. Um, If they're not, you're right. They're probably motivated to work at it in a work environment in a different way than they are in their personal lives. But, you know, we learn how to be social right Mm. from the minute we're born. We're our relationship with our, usually our mothers, our primary caregivers when we're very small is is critical for starting to teach us about the social world. And, and a baby, from the day they're born, those first two years of life, their brains are just getting fine-tuned in how to be social. And that, that process continues, but it's a kind of amazing trajectory that neuroscientists have, have mapped even just in the first two years when you're not really being all that social in the way that we think of it in adulthood. Um, And then as kids get older, they go to school, they start to interact with other, um, other peers, and they learn other things that they couldn't learn from their parents. They, they learn how to collaborate, how to give support instead of just receiving it, because of course, it's pretty lopsided with your parents. And they learned, you know, they learn to start navigating a group. And there's all kinds of, you know, sort of skills that we have to learn as we're, as we're, coming along and then in adolescence there's there's even more and we don't always think of it as something Mm -hmm. we should practice and parents don't talk to their kids about it that way we sort of assume that our kids either are good at it or or we worry that they're bad at it but we are spent we spend so much time sort of instructing them or I don't know trying to guide them to do well academically or you know to focus on to even time management, things like that. We'll give them all kinds of instruction on, and we won't usually give them that much instruction about how to be a good friend. Um, but evolutionarily, being good at making and maintaining friends is is a is a critical skill. It, there are real evolutionary advantages to it for 
all kinds of species and um, and for us, right? We we don't tend to see it that way. So I think we this is another example of the ways in which we don't prioritize friendship or understand what it requires. And I think we so we need to practice it. Then we get into adulthood and we either have or don't have those good social skills. Um, and you know, some work environments tend to encourage, shall we say, a more negative approach to people and to reward seems, you know, I mean, look, people say to me sometimes, well, you say, you know, being a good friend is evolutionary important, but so how come there's so many jerks to use a (laughs) safe word for, (laughs) for for broadcast, you know, how many, how, how come there's so many successful jerks? Well, that's true. And in some parts of society, we seem to reward that if it, if they're bringing some, you know, some other kind of success. But the truth is that in evolution, there are multiple paths to get to it. There's not just one strategy that works. What I'm saying is you get the most bang for your buck. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you, you tend to, you know, and you have a better time doing it along the way. You, you are more sustained. The people around you are more sustained. If you approach the world with this, um, with this way of thinking. And by the way, people who have friends at work who find their work environment more positive socially are more productive, they're more efficient, they're more likely to stay, their reviews are stronger, there's less turnover, there's all kinds of benefits in the workplace to thinking about friendship in the workplace and the kinds of principles of friendship that I'm talking about. Yeah, Uh, and um, again, I think it all makes sense, it's all really interesting um and it's made me think as well that whilst we are unconscious of a lot of these social and emotional skills that we pick up we are picking them up and we are developing them throughout life but there's also I wonder the extent to which I know that you said social media doesn't tend to get into in the way of friendships based on the research you've reviewed but there's also the fact that we our ancestors would have spent their time talking watching interacting not staring at a screen not typing on a type on a keypad not looking at a phone um not actually probably spending that much time alone either and so no iteratively that makes up a huge amount of time and so i feel like the the way that modern life is set up creates barriers to those natural processes which would enable us to develop and really fine-tune those skills in a natural environment. This is true. And let me be clear. I mean, there's a lot we don't know about the effects of social media and digital technology. What I argue in the book is that there is a new uh, set of really strong, rigorous science that shows that our kind of hyperbolic fear of social media and what it's doing is overblown and that it's not you know, on a broad population level scale, it's not nearly as bad for kids or adults as if we, as we've come to believe. Um, and I can get into the specifics of why that is, but let me just say for the skeptical audience, because there always is a skeptical audience, skeptical audience to this, that there's a really important study that came out of Oxford a couple of years ago that looked at a whole bunch of different factors in adolescents' lives. And what they found was that social media did on balance, social media use had a slightly negative effect on well-being, but it was less than half a percent. And things like 
well, being bullied was dramatically worse. Things like eating a good breakfast and riding a bike a lot were much had a much bigger effect on well-being for the good. And um, wearing glasses was worse um, than tech use to the bad. And so the point is that you have to see the forest for the trees and 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 see these things is um, you know in context. And that's one of the problems with the the early research on how social media affects our lives is that it um, it was kind of a blunt instrument because that's how science has to be at the beginning of any new field, right? And so mostly everybody was just measuring total use, total time on screens. But there's a really big difference between playing Grand Theft Auto or looking at porn and talking to your grandmother over Skype, right? Or or reading you know, a book, or reading a book, or or doing now doing your homework, right? And doing, and so um, so looking at time alone just doesn't give you the information you need. So parents shouldn't be nearly as freaked out about time as they should be about content and context. All of that is not to say that there aren't some kids for whom social media is is a problem and some adults um for older adults by the way it's pretty much a win-win because it if they are able to be connected on social media and through technology their lives are usually richer the 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 real thing seems to be that the arrow causal arrow goes in both directions mm-hmm. and that your online life and your offline life tend to reflect each other um often and so a uh, kid, and I, I keep talking about kids because that's where most of our concern lies. But you know, kids who are have a tendency to depression or um, don't have a lot of friends offline, maybe will suffer more when they go online. And you know, there's a lot of problems with body image stuff and the the performative aspect of how kids are are interacting online and things like that. But, you know, one of the points I make is that I have, my kids are all boys, right? So I, you will have seen this in the book. I mean, they love to play video games. 75% of, well, 95% of boys play video games and 75% of them do it with someone else, either in the room or over, um, you know, the internet or over a phone. And so it's really social for them. It's the way they hang out. And that's very hard for us, my, our generation to really get because that's not how we hung out. Um, but, you know, I came to understand that because I, I came back from this island where I was studying all these monkeys. Well, I was following around the scientists watching these monkeys interact. And I came back and I was yelling at my son and his friend for still being in the same darn couch that they had been on playing a video game when I left for this island in Puerto Rico. And I was like, you've done nothing. You never leave. And, and then I suddenly was like, wait, wait, look, Lydia, look, they're interacting. They're like laughing. They're sitting near each other. They're like two monkeys grooming and joking, you know, (laughs) interacting. And I was this epiphany that, you know, all I was seeing was the video game and not the visceral connection between them. And so I, I tell that story just to say, let's not Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's understand that that there are ways of connecting. Some of them are good. And of course, kids shouldn't be on video games all day long. But a kid who is alone playing a video game and not interacting with anyone else online, I worry about much more than a kid who is, you know, making a plan to meet up with his friends online and play the game together. Uh, those are not the same thing, right? And so the same is true for adults. And And the other thing is that, you know, we say that the word friend is kind of devalued currency because of Facebook and things like that. But the truth is we're smarter than that. And 
we really do know who our true friends are and who our you know Facebook friends are. Um, and now I'm talking about adults because no self-respecting adolescent would be caught dead on Facebook anymore, right? But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, I happen to have I have a lot of friends on Facebook, some of whom I'm close to, and some of whom I wouldn't recognize if I passed them on the street. Probably people I went to high school with, maybe or or college. And um, but I enjoy most of them online. Not everyone, but most of them. I have really close friends who aren't on social media, and I, you know, but. Here's the other thing. The really big takeaway is so social media isn't as terrible as we think, or it doesn't have to be, but but it is also true that in-person interaction is vital and gives us something that social that technology never can. Um, and so the strongest relationships we have are the ones that we use the most different channels to support so that we you know, see in person that we talk to on the phone that we maybe are friends on social media, but like the more ways you connect, the stronger the relationship tends to be. Um, and, you know, hopefully, though, the the online relationships have a life offline. Um, and, you know, I do think for a lot of kids, they spend more time together in school. Obviously, this is assuming pandemic you know, restrictions are, are, are gone, but um, they spend a lot of time in person in school and that is really valuable to them and how bereft they were without it should tell us that, you know, it's not their whole social lives are not only online. No, it's, it's a really good point. And the, the content and context, I think is a really helpful way of looking at it because it's all so nuanced as well. And the pandemic certainly my eldest is 15 and I saw that age group struggling and still struggling actually with the massive chunk that was taken out of their life basically. Oh I think it was terrible for a lot of kids and mine are a little bit older but you know one lost his senior year of high school and mm-hmm. one the whole college his most of his college experience has been disrupted and um, yeah they're they're really they're they're missing out on a lot and they and they know it most of them know it you know Um, and and it's um you know the time at which social brain is developing in teenage years and then emerging adulthood obviously continues to our late 20s and so yes 20 something year olds and I've really felt for 20 something year olds sitting on on teams or zoom because right my oldest son started his job in in he graduated from college in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. And then it took a while to get a job. Then he started in January of 21, but it's been mostly remote. Um, He does now live at least in the city where his job is, (laughs) but he still does it mostly from his apartment. Um, But, you know, he has had time, but it's a very, I mean, how do you learn to work in that? It's It's just a very different dynamic. And there's things that Um, I think, yeah, that generation is really missing out on. On the other hand, it's interesting to me how they've, they've just, they've now sort of learned, you know, they don't want to commute. They don't want to lose time to commuting. They don't want, you know, they've, I mean, he, for instance, lives in an apartment with several other kids his same age who all went to his same university and, and and they've created a social world for themselves that just looks different. Well, that, um, I mean, that's great if he's with other people his age. It's taken anyway. two years to get to this point where it feels like, you know, he's um, so anyway, it's uh, it's it's yes, the, it's a it's a strange. And, and here's from a neuroscience point of view. One of the things that's interesting is that, you know, 
I mean, people won't see this, but you and I are looking at each other on Zoom, except that we can't make proper eye contact because in order to look at the camera, I'm not looking at the little box with you in it on my screen. And if I'm looking at the box with you in it, I'm not actually to, to appear to be making eye contact with you. I'd have to look up at the camera and then I'm just looking at the little green dot at the top of my laptop. Right. And so there's a disconnect there and an eye contact in person primes all the social communicating parts of our brain in really good and important ways. And a video is never going to mm. do that on the same level. Um, the other thing people talk about is missing touch and smell and things like that. I had a woman ask me during the pandemic if, or she told me, I guess, that she she sprayed her sister's perfume in the oh. air when she was on a call, a Zoom with her sister, because that made her feel that her sister was present. And I thought that was so in so aware that she realized that there was this other sense that that was missing and that wasn't getting, you know, wasn't that we, we don't really pay attention to all the ways in which we interact when we interact in person and, and time-wise too, there's often a little lag in these things and our brains don't like that. You know, they, uh, they, they get a little freaked out when, when conversation doesn't go in the back and forth way that we expect it to. It's immensely interesting and so complex the way the brain works and so much of it is out of our awareness which is the interesting bit and the presence of someone else the touch the even probably I mean we did um when I did my undergraduate degree we did olfaction and chemo reception so it's a psychology mm. degree um and smell is so important and yet having even having studied that I I didn't think about that that's the first time I've thought about that I know, I know it's really, and it's not like we're touching our friends all the time, but we do. I mean, I don't know about you, but the first time I got together with friends and felt I could hug them, mm. it was a beautiful day. I, agree. <laughs> I was just so freaking happy. <laughs> I agree. I think I, it, it, the hugs from friends are one of the things I miss the most and hugs from people that may not have wanted my hugs as well but, um, <laughs> yeah I'm a hugger I'm a <laughs> sounds hugger. like you are too yeah definitely mm -hmm. um something that I'm really interested in because I I've written about it in in my book as well I spoke to um I don't know if you've come across him professor Marco Iacoboni who's um, head of brain sciences at UCLA and he's done an awful lot of work on empathy um mm. And you've talked about empathy and you've broken it down in the same way I have in my book, which I love. Mm. And actually, if everyone's talking about science, you'd expect that everyone is talking about things in the same way. But there's this the emotional empathy, the cognitive empathy and the compassion. And they're an absolutely critical component of our relationships with other people. Do you want to tell us a bit more about what what you've talked about in terms of those yeah. So empathy is something, the neuroscience of empathy is kind of an adolescent right now. <laughs> you know, we're, we're a ways in, we're maybe 15, maybe 20 years into studying this thing. Um, and, and that's what I thought was so interesting is that these scientists have come to think of the word empathy as this umbrella term that encompasses these different ways of interacting. And the, on some, the, the first one is the most you know, it's, it's almost physical, right? It's a, it's an embodied empathy and that the, the story that most 
captured that for me is the, is the, well, you could think of it as like, if your child is performing in a piano recital and you get butterflies in your stomach, right. You're, you're feeling the same thing. They, they are, and there was a study, I mean, who dreams this stuff up, but a study of <laughs> firewalkers, right. People who walk oh, really? across flaming coals and how they're, their family members' heart rates in the audience were similar. Like they, they, they responded as if they were also walking across the coals. Like there's a, there's a thing we do, right. That's a sort of physical empathy as we understand it is, is understanding that someone else has different beliefs and, and ideas and values. And it begins, you know, as like, it, well, it actually begins right at the beginning of life, but we often are the, we call it theory of mind in children. They have to learn that and they really start to get good at that at three or four. Um, but there's this physical thing. It's kind of like I yawn and you yawn too, right? That, that, that phenomenon. Then the cognitive one is the, is the piece that I was, that most of us think of empathy as, which is what I was saying that understanding that like, you know, someone else sees the world differently than you do. Right. And that's why two-year-olds are, can be such a pain <laughs> because they don't understand that the rest of the world is not them and that it doesn't revolve around them. Um, and, you know, but we're working on that all the way through into our, in through adolescence, we're developing that ability to really appreciate the nuances of how other people think and see the world and what they know and what they might not know. And, um, and then the last piece is the compassion piece, which is the desire to do something about it. If somebody else is seeing the world differently or experiencing the world differently. Um, and that, yeah, that's, that's, that's a different, more sophisticated or well, just different. It's a, it's another element of the way we interact with other people. And yes, it, all of those skills are fundamental to friendship. You can't really have a friend if you're no good at empathy. And there's an interesting study, um, which you may have heard of by Grit Hine, who's a Swiss neuroscientist who showed that looking at football fans, if you see um, a football fan in pain who is not part of your in group so not your, part of your mm -hmm, support your, your tribe group. exactly yes. that you not only will not be less motivated to act on that feeling of pain or that empathy but you'll also uh, reward centers of their brain are triggered so right and we can we can create that artificially in the lab oh, just really? by having people write people put on green shirts and red shirts and you say you're the red team and you're the green team and then you start to behave differently to the people who you perceive as on your team versus not on your team. Um, and, uh, and they've done studies here in the U S with baseball, like the Yankees and the Red Sox are famously longstanding baseball rivals. And, and it's the same as the football fans in, in, in Europe, it's uh, there's real, <laughs> there's a real us versus them thing that happens there, which is the flip side of empathy um, that, you know, is why relationships are messy. We, we tend to, um, and this is an evolutionary instinct to some extent, right. That we're protecting our group and we are, um, and we're looking to bond with other people. And then we see strangers as, as a little bit of a threat. The problem is that, or the good thing about humans is that if we can recognize that tendency, then we should work 
to counter it often, right? And so a lot of the worst things that I think happen in the world um, are often groups who seem to be unable to find any common ground, ground. right? Yeah. And see each other in this us versus them way. And that there is a natural instinct there, but there's also the ability to counter it. And that's the thing that I hope I would like to think we could work on. I don't know. Here in my country, we're we're not doing a good job of that right now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, my stepmom's actually um from the US and and when Trump was in, she renounced her US citizenship. Um she's she's yeah, she's from Boston. Um and I know that you guys on the, the East Coast and the West Coast don't always hold the same views as people down the center of No, the I've come to think actually, honestly, now with these new I mean, well, the there's been this raft of Supreme yeah. Court decisions that are truly controversial here. And um uh and yeah, I'm a I'm a East Coast liberal and I but I think, you know, our country is really is devolving into it's really about the individual states and and people seeing things very differently. And then mm. the rules in the states are now what, you know, make big, big differences in what you can do and who and it feels on some level like two countries, a red country and a blue country. We use red and blue, right? For the yeah. the Republicans are red, the Democrats are blue, and uh and the divisions just are getting um even I don't, well they're, deeper. They're more, deeper yes thank you yeah it's it's really it's it's scary isn't it and i think i mean grit hein actually one of the things that she looks at as a follow-on study is swiss nationals she's swiss versus non-swiss nationals and the simple act of spending more time with that person getting to know them is enough to overcome those in-group, out-group. It's, but like you say, you first have to acknowledge that. But if you mm -hmm. can acknowledge it, and then that's all you need to do. And I've said this to leadership teams I've talked to. I said, you know, this all you need to do is spend time getting to know that person. Yeah, there's really interesting conflict resolution work where they bring people from um, opposite sides of a hot button issue. Um, like here in the U.S., they've had people who, like a police officer and someone whose child was killed as a result of gun violence. And they but they put them together in a room where each of them tells their story of their experience and you, you go beyond the little surface conversation. And and it's very effective and powerful stuff. But, you know, that's that's a one on one thing. Yeah. That's 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 the issue. But um, uh, the thing the other thing I'll say, though, since, you know, we're both thinking about this from a scientific point of view, the big problem we have here anyway, and I think maybe you have a little bit there, but not to the same degree, is that people don't even look at the facts anymore, though. Mm. They can't agree on what the, you know, and, and you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And, um, and you know, it's also true that science science doesn't always agree. There are different studies and that's part of the process. And so that, that uncertainty is part of the process. But what is also true is that you get a preponderance of studies pointing in one direction that tells you something um, that is important. And, and if there are just a handful of outliers that, you know, that you're clinging to that study because it's the only one that proves your point, then you're probably not in a good position fact-wise. <laughs> yeah, and facts. Um, I heard you saying, I think it was Dax Shepard's uh, podcast. Mm. I love his podcast. I think That was he, fun. He's brilliant. Uh, it's great hearing you on that. 
on that, uh, you referred to, of course, he has the fact check at the end of that every week. And you referred to the fact that in your first role um, as a journalist, that was what you did. You fact Right. Checked. I was a fact checker. That's right. I and, started out as a fact checker. Which is great because I know that, I mean, I, I've been called a psychiatrist in the newspaper in the UK. And I'm like, it's, it's very kind of you to give me a medical degree. <laughs> <laughs> I am a chartered psychologist, which takes right. seven years, but it's a very different degree. and. That, like you say, those things aren't even within the field itself. Everything's being squashed, and there there aren't the resources necessarily. And and that comes down to the responsibility of you as a journalist to do that. But it also, I think, comes down to us as citizens uh, as a responsibility to. It doesn't mean we have to check the facts on everything, but we do need to look at what is our source, where is this coming from, and how much bias might there be in that? And just stopping and pausing and, and asking those questions is really important. Right. We have to be open-minded, including to the possibility that we are not correct um, or that our assumptions that we are bringing too many of our own assumptions to, to something. That's absolutely true. Um, but uh, the, I mean, I'm, working on a story right now about some research that just came out about that shows really quite clearly that people who live in conservative leaning counties and states in this country have worse health outcomes over time than people who live in more liberal areas. And they think it's because, so what's, what's non-negotiable is the gap that there's a difference, right? The question is why, and there are a bunch of possibilities. But the research is beginning to show that that the policies, the sets of policies that more liberal governments, state governments, and county governments choose, are have are better for public health, better for individuals' chances of of living longer, and and so mortality rates are higher, or the likelihood of dying is higher in conservative leaning places because of things like rules around um, tobacco, indoor smoking or, um, and gun laws in this country. Right. And, uh, and minimum wage. And, and there is a whole long list of things. And um, those countries maybe are more likely to have uh, taken up the Medicaid expansion. Anyway, I'm getting in the weeds on, on American things, but the point is that there is a fact here of a difference, right? And, um, and if you can't acknowledge that, then, which a lot of people won't do, they'll just say, well, those studies are all politically motivated. I'm like, well, no, <laughs> no, they're really not. They're looking at the data of how many people have died, you know? Um, so anyway, I'm getting far afield from friendship. <laughs> but what I would add for anyone listening is if you look around, you've got some fantastic articles you've written. We've referred to the Thank different you. publications at the beginning. But I started going down rabbit holes and trying to read all these. I was like, oh, it's another interesting one. <laughs> and I would say to everyone, have a look at your website. Um, there are you. links yes. to some of the articles on there. Have mm -hmm. a look at the other podcasts you've been on and definitely read your book, Friendship, which is brilliant. Your book before I want to get. Um, your, so you've written three books, I believe. 
I've written four actually. You've written four. La- yes, the last one I was a co-author, and but that one just became a New York Times bestseller. So yay, <gasps> oh my goodness, yay congratulations! Me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's the holy grail in our world, right? Um, that one is called Parent Nation, but it it was I was the the hired gun in that. It's with a, a woman named Dana Susskind, who's a who's a friend. But it's really about the importance of early childhood and how we as a society can support parents or not. Um, Amazing. But, but can I also yeah. say, yes. as a woman supporting another woman, don't put yourself as a, playing a lesser role than you did there. Because oh well, yes, no, thank you. But my name is not on the cover; it's on the title page. So if somebody goes to the book, they're not, you know. So oh, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm okay. telling you the truth. But I did actually write every word of it. So amazing. amazing. <laughs> so there's that. No, I'm taking full credit for the New York Times bestselling thing. I'm I'm all about that. But I uh, I but you know you won't you won't find my name on the cover. So that's why I'm saying it's not you know it's not the same as my three books that are all me. Um, and they are. The first one is about. Uh, so the, the first one is called Toxic Truth: the the a scientist and a doctor um, and the battle over lead, and it is essentially a dual biography of two researchers who were among the first to understand the harm that, in their case, lead was doing. But the reason the story is so, and then they 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 really risk their careers and reputations to to fight for this uh, in a way that is quite um, interesting, and it's it's kind of a case study for all of environmental science. Honestly, there's, we know more about lead than we do about just about any other toxin. And we put it out in the world before we knew a lot about what it did. Um, and so it's a, it's a really interesting story and they're very um, interesting researchers. And so, so that one, that was the first book. The next book's called I can hear you whisper. And it is the story of my, my youngest son is deaf and has a cochlear implant. And it is this partly memoir, my story of being his mother in the first years of his life, trying to figure out he was the first deaf child I ever really knew. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he was my own kid. And so I needed to understand how, how this worked, but then it's also a brain story about the role of sound and language, the role of sound in delivering language and literacy to a child. And, um, and then it's also cultural history of the fight over, um, cochlear implants and also just the evolution of deaf culture, um, both here and in other countries. Um, and, and so it's, uh, yeah, that was, um, I'm really proud of that book. And I think it's, um, it, it combines, it tells a a complicated story. Um, but, um, you know, from a science perspective, obviously, but also from a mother's perspective. And I think that's what brings the magic as well is, is when you bring the science and the emotion and personal together the soul the science and the soul Mm -hmm. is coming together Mm -hmm. um and hearing you talk about it in more depth I wish we'd actually had time to talk about it more here Mm -hmm. because it it is fascinating in terms of how the brain develops or doesn't develop depending on windows of opportunity right and exposure to sign language as well as auditory right and so I look at all of that at how um how early all of that is affecting the brain and experience is affecting the brain and, um, and how important that is, how critical that is, um, for, for kids. And so, uh, and there's so much that I, I mean, here I was a well-educated, um, you know, professional journalist, and there was so much I didn't know about deafness and, and sound in the brain. I mean, your ears are really just doorways to the brain and we hear with our brain. And, uh, and so you, 
if if you want to be able to talk and listen, you need to be able to get sound into the brain early, or you need a flu, um, you need, well, not or, but fluent ASL exposure very early on will lay down the same kinds of circuits in the brain. But the problem is that that's very, very hard to come by because there are so few um, people who sign really fluently. And so few kids are born to, um, well, let me put it this way. 95% of deaf and hard of hearing kids are born to hearing parents like me for whom ASL would be a second language is a second language. And again, anyway, if you, getting down you, the but, rabbit hole. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's brilliant. But I think it's also interesting. Um, you take someone like yourself, who have you, as you've said, you're well-educated, you're, you're a journalist, so you investigate things, but there's still so much to learn. So take right. the average person who has a deaf child do they ever learn enough about that? Can they? Are they equipped with it? Are they provided with the support that they need and that child needs? Um, well, we're trying. <laughs> people it's, are trying. I mean, I mean you know, many people are, many people aren't. There are disparities in this just as in everything else health-related. And, um, uh, and so it's, you know, no, there's a lot of room for improvement. And there's one lady in particular who I know will love that her daughter's got cochlear implants. Um, mm. She was born without the hairs on her eardrums. Or right, the, right. What, the inner, the hair cells on the inner ear. Inner um, ear, even. You're not going to have them on your eardrum, are you? Um, <laughs> yes. So, uh, but it's amazing what a tiny, tiny little thing like that. Um, right, right. Again, and she told vertical. me, I was as someone naive. I was like, really? Really? And it, I guess it makes sense because they need to vibrate to be able to produce so what you yeah, tell me actually well, <laughs> so, well it's yeah no I describe all that in the book um oh, well, see, I, I hope need to get very excessively and poetically um how hearing actually works uh but it um it is yeah it's it's a it's this incredibly complex I mean it's the wonder of of nature really that the ear what it can do and and cochlear implants do not they don't deliver anything like um, the fidelity that your natural hearing does. It's a little bit like um, the difference between a Fisher Price toy piano plinking and plonking and a Steinway Grand is what anybody who's lucky to have, you know, natural hearing gets all kinds of nuance and and warmth and complexity to the sound they hear. Cochlear implants can't do that, but they can um, deliver. Um, I mean, it's amazing if you get them early enough, your brain takes, makes sense of the sound that you get. And I mean, my son operates really fluently in the hearing world. Um, that doesn't mean he isn't deaf. He is, but, uh, uh, but he, he does remarkably well with the technology. And so it's an amazing, it's a science, it's a technology story. It's a brain story. It's a parenting story. It's all those things. Amazing. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm sure you've got a busy day ahead of you, busy week. It's going to get hot in New York this week, I believe. It's been hot. Yes. The last few days have been Has very it? hot. Okay. So, yes. <laughs> so um, I'll let you get on with the day before you're rushing around in the heat. And just thank you so much. I'll put all of your information onto the show notes so that uh, I'll obviously check that with you as well, but so that people can see where to find you, Great. where to find your books. And yep. as I said, I really encourage uh, people to go out and give them a read thank you so much fiona it's been great yeah you'll find everything at lydiadenworth.com thank you brilliant (laughs) 
Thanks to my guests. Thanks to you for listening. If you want to find out more about me and my work, go to fionamurden.com or my social media handle is also Fiona Murden. If you enjoyed this, please do subscribe, review and tell your friends. It'd be a massive help. But for now, goodbye and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.